Hello, this is Overdrive, a program about the facts, the fun and the fiction of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we look at news stories, including Volvo says it will accept full liability for its autonomous vehicles. We discuss the Bathurst 1000 car race. Is it just for rev heads? We road test the Ford Mondeo. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories, including some of the most ridiculous reasons people put up not to implement a bike plan in a Californian town. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now let's get the program going. First, the news. One of the big stumbling blocks for the adaption of autonomous cars has been a concern that if there is an accident, who do you blame? Now, Volvo Cars' president and chief executive said the company would accept full liability whenever one of its cars is in autonomous mode. He was speaking at a seminar organised by Volvo called A Future with Self-Driving Cars, Is It Safe? It was held at the House of Sweden in Washington, D.C., Volvo hasn't officially elaborated exactly what accept full liability means. Google and Mercedes-Benz reportedly said they will accept full liability if their self-driving vehicles cause a collision. Volvo's president also called out federal regulators in the US for not taking charge to establish a framework for regulation and testing of autonomous vehicles. Despite high levels of community education and sustained enforcement, alcohol-related crashes and drink-driving offences continue to pose a threat to road safety. Some states in Australia have introduced compulsory alcohol interlocks for people who are repeat offenders of driving with a high blood alcohol level. The interlock is an electronic breath testing device that prevents the car from starting if alcohol is detected. Now Austroads, which is the Association of Australasian Road Transport and Traffic Agencies, has released a report examining options to extend the use of alcohol lock programs. They have considered using these devices on a wider segment of drink-driving offenders, other high-risk groups such as P-platers, corporate fleets and, if appropriate, the broader driving population on a voluntary basis. Electronic equipment and information shared between vehicles are ways that safety can be enhanced. But intelligent transport systems designed for cars cannot simply be transferred to motorcycles. Due to the limited space available, electronic systems have to be smaller and be resilient to water, dust and vibration. Now three manufacturers of motorcycles, Honda, BMW and Yamaha, are working together to try and develop safety systems much faster. The new cooperation was announced at the ITS World Congress in Bordeaux, the world's largest event for intelligent transport systems and services. The three partners also encouraged other motorcycle manufacturers to join the consortium so as to further increase safety in powered two-wheelers. Bicycles are also getting into the connected vehicle technology. A new smartphone app lets drivers know the traffic signal phasing and timing ahead of them. 
the connectivity will help them to time their arrival at intersections so they won't have to slow down, stop or wait. And also to help bike riders, now there is a hydrogen fuel cell system that can be retrofitted to any bike to turn it into a powered e-bike. Battery management software also connects to the rider's smartphone via Bluetooth to show them how much further they can travel before needing to replace a hydrogen cartridge. Together, the two cartridges can provide enough hydrogen for the fuel cell to run the bike for 40 kilometres. Or further, if the rider takes note of the connectivity from the traffic lights and catches a green wave. Utes, the kind that have a dual cab and a ute tray, are becoming increasingly popular, particularly with families. Now the RACV, the motoring club in Victoria, reports that some motorists have received notices from toll operators advising of increased toll charges for their vehicles. This toll increase relates to vehicles with a two-axle cab chassis construction with a gross mass between 1.5 and 4.5 tonnes. Interstate road tolls have a different system that is more equitable for road users, with vehicles being charged according to their size, their length and height, and their use, private or commercial registration. Anecdotally, some motorists with affected vehicles are signing up for interstate road toll accounts to avoid the higher charges in Victoria. According to the advertising agency Bird Strategy, more than 30% of Russian drivers disregard disabled parking spaces without caring about the signs on the ground. Working with Dislife, a Russian disability rights advocacy organisation, they put the issue literally in drivers' faces by projecting video holograms of disabled people popping up right into the spot they were about to take. If common courtesy won't do the trick, being shamed by the person whose spot you're taking just might. To create the illusion, the team sprayed a nearly invisible water mist screen into the parking space, then projected the moving image onto the screen. Special cameras verify the presence of the disabled sticker on their windscreens, and if no sticker was detected, the hologram would appear to confront the driver. And that has been the news. The annual Bathurst 1000 car race has been run and won. Is it only for the rev heads or is it like a football grand final? Could it attract a much wider range of people than the usual throughout the season series? What does it need to appeal to a wide audience? Characters? Drama? Action, of course? Now, this year's race took just over six hours with cars averaging 160 kilometres an hour. That is really fast. Did it have all the necessary elements to make it a great race? Brent Davidson and I watched it closely in separate households. He's joined us on the line to give us his opinion. Brent, thanks very much for your time. David, it's always my pleasure to come on the show. Now, listen, I've got to tell you something. You put it there about the car race we watch. Like, There's the Melbourne Cup. Watch the Melbourne Cup. We all stop and watch the Aussie Rules Grand Final. We all stop and watch the Rugby League Grand Final. And this is the car race we all watch. We don't so much watch the Australian Grand Prix because, no, that's, that, that's other people. These are our homegrown heroes. And I think that's it. We all become an expert on car racing on Bathurst Sunday. 
it was always that showroom car. It's not now, I know, but it's still got Holdens and Fords and, in fact, Mercedes and uh, Volvos and and Nissans. It's got a bit more of a mixture now, and I think they're aiming for that. Certainly something that I grew up with following the the Bathurst race more than I ever did Formula One. Absolutely, absolutely. The only the only thing that might cause our Bathurst 1000 a bit of grief um, in coming years is the February 12-hour GT race. Same track, mm. some of the same drivers, very different cars, but, but the whole thing is there. It's a long-distance race on a very tough track. Cars go bang against fences. People cry. You know, there's drama, there's the whole thing. It's a real little soap opera encapsulated into one, one 12 hour or, or one 6 hour or whatever car race event. The thing I found about it is that quite often uh, these things have been endurance races uh, and they're now just sprints, but there, there was some fantastic passing throughout the event that it, it was really competitive sort of stuff. Quite often, it had tended to be a little bit of one car getting out ahead. Then you'd have a safety car, which would bunch everyone up if there's an accident. They all bunch up beside the safety car while they clear the track. But last year it worked well. There was a fantastic finish to it. But this year, well, it strung out a bit at the end. It seemed inevitable towards the last few laps. But there was just some great passing during the event. I have to say that this year's race was a true classic Bathurst race. It was one of those races that the absolute purists like myself appreciated the the tactics and the driving style and you know the fact that it rained a little bit at a critical point of the race that helped as well. But on the other side of the coin, my dear wife, who is a bit of a redhead but not nearly as much as me, she sat there beside me on the couch the whole time and enjoyed it from a slightly different perspective she was entertained by it so this year's race more than some in the last few years was really a race for everyone yeah i think that's right the thing that i found uh, amazing i mean the first 1000 kilometer race was in 1973 that took an hour longer and there were no safety cars yep. they averaged about 136 kilometers an hour still um, remarkable in cars that uh, people got in, some other international races have got in. On a shorter track. Yes, didn't have the chase in it. That's right. Yeah, it's still fundamentally Bathurst, but yep. still had one big long straight rather than a kink in the middle, which slows them down significantly. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's amazing. And the cars, who, who was it? Jackie X got in a Moffat's car and uh, drove it in practice, came back and said, Alan, it doesn't break. <laughs> Just, That's correct. So Alan went out and took it for a few laps and he said, the brakes are working perfectly. <laughs> but we have to remember that Monsieur X had been driving Formula One cars and Le Mans racing cars at that point so something like a uh, a big old falcon coupe was uh, was not quite his cup of tea but i've since spoken to him and he loves he loves the memory of that one day of the of his life where he won back sorry back isn't it lovely yep Brent, it's lovely to talk to you, and I'm glad you enjoyed the event, uh, the Bathurst 1000. I know I certainly did. Thanks very much for your time. David, it was fun. That's uh, Brent Davidson from Newcastle, of course, the uh, Newcastle Herald and the Illawarra Mercury. We were talking about the great race, the Bathurst 1000. And you can hear a longer version of that interview with Brent about the Bathurst 1000 by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au.
Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia. Ford has shown that it can sell big cars. Their biggest selling model is the Ranger Ute. They've also shown that they are not good at selling anything much smaller. With the ceasing of production of the Australian-built Ford Falcon next year, will that part of the Australian market get new overseas models or will we see the segment shrink and Australians might start buying more medium-sized cars? Ford have a medium-sized cars. It's the Mondeo in Australia now. has a pretty good reputation. Errol Smith and I have been driving some and we have our feelings. Errol joins us on the line now. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. We call it a medium-sized car, but they're not exactly small, say, compared to some Falcons when you go back a few years. Yeah, I, I had a look at um, at how the, the size of the Falcon has grown over the years. Uh, and if you go back to the ED Falcon in 93-94, uh, it's actually shorter than this Mondeo that we were driving. So, mm. well, the, the EF is uh, the next model up, and it's a little bit longer at about, about 4,900 millimetres so, um, yeah, this is, um, if you go back, you know, basically if you go back 20 years, this is as big as a, as a Falcon was then. This is not a small car is, I guess, the, uh, the point I'm trying to make. You know, we call them medium cars, yet in Australia, perhaps not compared to the United States or the Yank tanks in some ways, although they, they do sell quite well over there. Not, they still sell more utes over there as well. But uh, no, I don't just mean Ford. I mean a whole American cars. But we are still talking. We call them medium. We call Corollas small cars. Uh, the reality is they are reasonably size and quite good size. In fact, this one um, certainly was a comfortable family car. Mm. This, is a, this is a big car. It's got a lot of room front and back and in the boot. It's um, not small in, or even medium in any, in any regard. In, in, in that sense, I think it looks good. Yeah, I, I do think this is uh, this is a really good looking car. I mean, earlier Mondeos were a little a little bland, but um, they they really sort of cranked up the style. And and if you go up to the uh, the top model, which is a Titanium, which we had, you get a lot of toys as well. Certainly yeah. comes with comfort features in it too, and, and safety features as well. Uh, uh, reversing camera, sat nav, mm. uh, speed sensing, cruise control on the top model. Yeah, and you've got a choice of engines. They're, they're both two-litre turbos. One's you've got, but you've got a petrol or a diesel, depending on your uh, on your preference. That's interesting, isn't it? Ford, even including in the Mustang, have gone this Echo uh, route uh, that you can get uh, in the Mustang. It's more of a choice here. It's uh, it's it's a choice of only two. The two-litre Echo Boost engine comes in 149 and 177 kilowatts. Uh, the same sort of maximum torque, 345 metres. That's for the petrol engine version. The diesel engine version, which we had a drive of as well, which was you know, remarkably comfortable, 132 kilowatts and 400 newton metres of torque. That's obviously a diesel's advantage. Are both comfortable cars. They're not necessarily the rorty sort of Holden Commodore Ford Falcon sort of image not that all of them are but when you back it up with V8 supercar racings the Commodore and the Falcon I don't know almost blokey sort of uh, power sort of mm. image I mean, this is more sophisticated yeah it is and, and it's not really a, a quick car it's not being sold as that but it's um it's certainly not slow I mean you've got a still got a two-liter engine in a 
uh, medium-sized vehicle with a turbo chucked on the top. You know, it's sprightly when you when you put your foot down. Uh, and you've got a six-speed auto in there too, so it's reasonably e- efficient as well. Now, it has a number of nice features. You think it's got uh, some, and certainly the top-of-the-range titanium has some sort of an almost night rider feel to it. Yeah, it's got a, uh, a warning for when you're getting too close to the vehicle in front, and uh, basically it looks like night rider lights in your face. Sort of a heads-up display <laughs> bouncing off the off the windscreen. <laughs> it's the first thing uh, I thought mul- when I saw it. All right, Errol, lo- lovely stuff. Ford Mondeo, a good car. I appreciate your comments on it. Thanks for your time. No worries, David. And that's Errol Smith, and we were talking about the Ford Mondeo, medium-sized car uh, that is selling not as well as perhaps uh, it uh, should do in the market. And you can hear a more detailed discussion of the Ford Mondeo with Errol and myself by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au where we talk about the engines, the performance and the pricing. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. And once again, we talk about some quirky news. And joining us again is Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. Hello, David. I have a story here. Uh, bike lanes in uh, Coronado in California, they're pretty positive in their approach to biking. In fact, the League of American Bicyclists has recognised a city as being committed to cyclists and the bike commute share is about 4.5%. Okay, so driving to work is 70 still a long way to go, but... This is a community that is tried to do something. So they have a master plan to add 12 more miles of bike paths. They receive some criticism, some concern, some opposition, including one person said, "You are, of course, you paint on the, the lanes that they are for bikes only. You are covering Coronado with paint stripe pollution said Jerry Lance-Brian. Obviously, the painted lines take away from the aesthetic elegance of a black piece of bitumen. <laughs> That's right, David. Filled with potholes and uh, lined with advertising signs. It just looks so good, doesn't it? <laughs> well, uh, another uh, resident, Aileen Oya, described as graffiti on the streets affecting their property values. Of course, the, the real case is that uh, cycle lanes can increase the value of property. They increase... Uh, turnover of businesses where they're installed uh, and of course they make things safer but uh, this town Coronado has found that going over the top a little was quite successful because um, you know one of the the residents uh, said that uh, it would be similar to personally taking all three of my daughters to a tattoo parlor and having them completely body tattooed uh, leaving aside that that appears to be quite a trend these days it's uh, yeah a little bit uh, extreme, but it didn't take much convincing for the city council to uh, agree, and they've um, they have suspended the decision to uh, to install the bike lanes. Interestingly, David Coronado's 4.5 percent bike commute share doesn't sound very much. Um, in 2011, Sydney's was 0.9 percent. So 4.5 percent is a solid and a good proportion of cycle commute. Local resident Carolyn Rogerson said the lanes bring to mind a visual cacophony 
that if you look there long enough, it will induce a dizzy type of vertigo. I'd love to see some evidence, Dave. Yes, yes, as opposed to other yes. non-dizzy types of vertigo. Now, the next thing on their target, I imagine, next target in their sites will be possibly uh, crosswalks and pedestrian crossings, David. Stop lines, stop signs. Oh. They're, they're driving me crazy. It's, uh, yeah. it's all about what, freedom. Well, a stop line. What a, what a con- confrontation to your liberty. That's right. It's to, offensive. To have something so associated with having to bring you to a halt. I know. And it, it's, it's, it's extreme, David. There's no, uh, there's no shades of grey that we see in a lot of uh, social uh, interaction. It's straight out, who's telling me to stop and why should I? And it goes very deeply. Uh, Jerry McCarty uh, said these black streets with these brilliant white lines everywhere, because believe me, it takes away from your home, from your outlook on life. <laughs> and the mayor, of course, said that uh, the public should get what it wants. This is obviously not the cycling public, unless what they're asking for is illegal or unethical, or he should have added, and stupid. We have an attitude that you can say anything that you like as long as it confirms your opinion. Yes, yes. And it doesn't matter if it makes no sense, if it's got no overall value to it. It's if I don't like it, everyone else can go to hell in a basket. Mm. A more calming story, bro. Yes, David, last week we spoke about um, the, uh, the puppet theatre in Slovenia where they lift the hatch of the vehicle and they play to people who are stuck in traffic behind the van. Well, in the M5 in the UK, uh, a bunch of musicians who were travelling home from a, a wedding in Devon, they were stuck in a, quite a long traffic jam, and they, um, the string quartet actually climbed out onto the roadside and performed a quick concerto of uh, Packlebell's Cannon in the key of outside lane of motorway near Taunton. The M5 was blocked in both directions, and uh, they provided a, a very pleasant gig for people stuck on the road. Do, David, do you think this is a nice idea? I love the idea. Packabell's Cannon makes you think you're in a lift, though. That might be the problem. You know, the first forum by the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management in 1982 was on LATAM, Local Area Traffic Management. And the whole principle was to slow down traffic, if not redirect it, from local areas. A cartoon came out that had a quartet beside the road and the caption was, traffic calming. Rather nice. Well, look, I hope it's, it's calm people. They, they said that they got a round of applause and at the end a woman came over and gave them some sweets. That No word on whether mm. there were razor blades or anything like that inside, but... <laughs> Um, it sounded like it was uh, quite a positive outcome. I love the idea. Mm. We once were stopped in a very long queue for Wiseman's Ferry, and it wasn't moving much at all, so we had a picnic. Had to borrow a corkscrew and you know, got some cheese out and chatted away with and, share, and chatted. Did you share with people? Yes. Yeah, maybe the people around them. Absolutely. Now, did I ever tell you that story where I had dinner with Bronwyn Bishop? No, no, you haven't, but I'd love to hear it. It was a big function. I wasn't personally invited to her house. I was sitting at the table. She was at the table too, but she was actually sitting on her own. The person beside her wasn't, wasn't talking to her, and the other side was vacant. So, you know, I, I knew the charity, and I didn't want her sitting there. So, you know, to get a bit crabby or what have you. So I went over and had a chat. Uh, I chatted to her for a while. I now realise why she was sitting on her own. But... <laughs> The thing she said was, I, I raised the concept, I've been doing some reading about uh, 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 social equity and, and things and a sense of community. Boom! No such thing as community, she said. Doesn't exist. 
People only exist for themselves. No such thing as community. And when I read this story, I thought, yes, there, you know, it reminded me about Yes, there is. There is that desire for people, even in court, in difficult situations, to interact, to interact in a positive way. Indeed, David. And, this I'm, group actually went out of their way to climb out and get set up for the enjoyment of other people. Yes. And people found a common ground and got together and I just thought that was nice. Now the the whole problem was a horse transporter had stopped on the hard shoulder and had broken down or something, the car towing it and the horses inside became agitated and tried to escape. Maybe the quartet should have gone and played to the horses. Ah, yes, yeah. Or perhaps they'd previously played something a little bit uh, vivace. A little bit of Wagner or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Found it a bit right of the Valkyrie, and and it, it sort of revved the horses up. We yes. we may never know the full story. <laughs> we should research this. Yeah. I think we should research. Brian, I love the idea of collections, and there's this collection by Paul Rackham. He spent 25 years. He was in Britain. He was the biggest collector in Britain of tractors. He's 79 years old now. He's going to sell them. But he had 230 tractors inside a 55,000 square foot building. Canny, who was uh, the place. He's going to sell them. They reckon he'll make about uh, 2 million pounds, 4.2 million Australian dollars. I just love the idea of collecting tractors. And I tell you for why. You can see what they do. You can see the workings of them. It's like Meccano. It's got some sort of... Now, I was MC of a car show a little while ago. The thing that really got the most attention was the Porsche. The Porsche Tractor. Oh, really? From 1949, beautifully restored. The engine looked smaller. Well, you know, it was just up the front and hardly much of it. But tractors, you know, you could see the gear lever, you could see the gearbox, you could see the diff and all those sorts of things. It was just wonderfully workable. By the way, the 1949 Porsche Tractor sold more than their 356 Sports car. <laughs> what I like about this story is that not just tractors that tow, uh, that pull ploughs and the like. He has this guy has tractors that are very interesting. He's got interestingly, David, one, uh, one called the David Brown tractor, which uh, was built for the Royal Air Force and it was used to haul sort of bombers and fuel bowsers around on airfields during World War Two. It's a 1941 era. So he has a bunch of really interesting tractors, including uh, a Caterpillar 15 from 1931, which had tracks like a tank. Brian, always good to talk to you. As, as always, thank you very much for your thank time. Thank you, and bye-bye. And that's Brian Smith, and we were talking some unusual, sad, tragic, excessive forms of transport. And Brian and I talk more about tractors and about the world's most expensive private yacht. For the extended interview, go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, David Campbell, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated to stations across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.